excited about today's lesson, but it's one of those lessons where I'm sure of one thing. There's not a way in this world you can live it out. Not a way in this world. And I love lessons like that. Because it is too humanly impossible. Your tables are a little bit different now, so look around for where your people are, okay? Um, It is humanly impossible to do today's lesson unless the Holy Spirit gives you extra grace, gives me extra grace, gives me extra strength, gives, gives me extra cleansing, gives me extra ability to live this out. I love this kind of lesson because it makes us totally dependent on God. So I was praying about this uh, yesterday and today saying, oh Lord, they're just going to sit there saying, some of them are going to sit there saying, I love this. And some are going to sit there going, oh my goodness, what in the world is she asking us to do? So when that happens, you know, we got to pray a lot. So around your tables, I want you to do some praying. I think what would be good for this is if we just all kind of do some sentence prayers around your table and just ask God to take you deeper in his word today and deeper in a sense of understanding that he can help you live out today's lesson. Okay, so let's take a couple minutes and pray. Would you pray for me that I'll do a good job teaching it? Would you pray for you that you do a good job receiving it? But pray most of all that the Holy Spirit just helps you to go to a new level in serving him. Okay, let's pray. Round your table. Lord, I just feel especially, especially dependent on you today. Um, I feel excited about how you're going to take us deeper in you, uh, but I feel so dependent because all the stuff we're going to talk about today really cuts against the flesh, cuts against the carnal nature, cuts against... um, the way the world teaches us to live. And whenever that happens, there's just something often that stirs up in us that says, one, I don't want to live that way, and two, you can't live that way. And so I pray, Lord Jesus, I I just give this to you. I bring all my friends before you and say, would you help all of us to have, like our eyes just being opened to how much more we can be for you, how much more we can look like you, how much more we can uh, follow your example. And I pray, you know, Lord, you've done a deep work in me the last couple of days as I've worked on this lesson where I've just had to lay myself before you again and say, I'm just not living this the way I need to live it. So um, help every single one of us to have our understanding uh, broadened, but more than that, to have our faith broadened, that you, God the Holy Spirit living inside us, can help us to live this out. But I know it's going to take some deep cleansing. So today, Lord, would you cleanse us as we recognize where we still have a lot of carnality, where we still have a lot of selfishness and self-focused behavior. And when you do that, we'll be really careful to know no teacher could convince us of that. No person sitting around our table could convince us of that. It's only you. So here we are, Lord. 
touch us today, I pray. In your precious holy name, amen. Amen. Let me tell you, uh, take your Bibles and turn to Philippians chapter 2. Joanne, your table might be a little different today, so see if you can find your people. <clears throat> Philippians chapter 2. Girls, you might have your table a different spot today, so oh, you've got it. Um, Philippians chapter 2. Let me tell you that much of today's lesson will be based upon two books. One is The Life You've Always Wanted by John Ortberg. How many have ever read The Life You've Always Wanted? Bunch of, several of you. Great book. Ortberg just writes so practically. I love his stuff. The other is a book, um, one of my top ten books of my life, called Celebration of Discipline by Richard Foster. How many have ever read uh, this one? It's, it's not nearly as easy to read. It's one of those I get out about every year or so and go, oh my goodness, I still have a long ways to go. So much of today's material will be taken from these two books. I also have a little bit taken from one of my top ten books called Humility by Andrew Murray. Um, it's a little tiny book that I read about every year because I go, oops, got a long, long, long ways to go. Um, so I wanted you to know that, that when I use a lot of quotes, those will be the books that I'll be taking it from. Well, I realized this last week that we have two weeks to go on Philippians. And I was going, okay, Lord, what do I... Uh, Sue, look for your table. They're at a different spot today. Where's Sue's table? Sue. Right. Over here, maybe, Sue? I'll let you look for him. Um um, so we have two lessons to go, and I'm thinking, okay, Lord, as I look over Philippians, what do I feel like we've not covered enough? And some of it I'm not even sure because I wasn't hearing quite a few of the lessons as I had staff meetings, and so I'm thinking, what do I teach? So I just started opening Philippians and just going through it, you know, verse by verse by verse, and I got stuck again at chapter 2. So I was going, okay, if, we, if, if you want me to teach chapter 2, what do you want me to teach on it? And it leaped out at me, this concept that I taught before when I taught you from Philippians 2. So first I was going, but Lord, it's the same lesson. And then I was going, oh, I guess I got a lot more to teach on this. And I got a lot more to live on this. So we're going to start out today talking about humility versus pride. And then we're going to go real practically. You'll love the second half of this. Um, it'll be just like you'll go, oh, I never even thought about that. So we'll set the foundation, set the stage, and then we'll go into some practical stuff, okay? Humility. Um, chapter 2 of Philippians is one of the most beautiful sections of scripture that you can find. But it's so well known to those of us who've studied the Bible a lot that I didn't want you to just go, okay, I know that, I know that, I know that. So on your, on your sheets of paper, I took the message, paraphrase, of Philippians chapter 2, because I think it really helps us to see it a little bit differently. Um, if you've ever studied, read the message, you know that it's not a translation it's Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of it. But what he does is make it so like 2013 language that sometimes it helps me because I've studied Philippians. I've memorized Philippians. I feel like I know a lot of Philippians. It helps me go, oh, I see it a little bit differently. And you might feel the same way today. So I put it on your um, note guides there. Let's see what he says. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. <clears throat> If you've gotten anything at all out of following Christ, if his love has made any difference in your life, if being in a community of the Spirit means anything to you, if you have a heart, if you care, then do me a favor. I love how he writes. Isn't that just so great? I'm going, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Then do me a favor. Well, I guess I should. Agree with each other. Love each other. Be deep-spirited friends. Don't push your way to the front. Don't sweet-talk your way to the top. Put yourself aside and help others get ahead. Don't be obsessed with getting your own advantage. Forget yourselves long enough to lend a helping hand. And then he gives the real practical example of who did that. 
Think of yourselves the way Christ Jesus thought of himself. He had equal status with God. But he didn't think so much of himself that he had to cling to the advantages of that status no matter what. Not at all. When the time came, he set aside the privileges of deity and took on the status of a slave. He became human. Having become human, he stayed human. It was an incredibly humbling process. He didn't claim special privileges. Instead, he lived a selfless, obedient life, and then he died a selfless, obedient death. The worst kind of death at all. Crucifixion. Now, I want you to do something around your tables for a minute to kind of get you involved in this. I want you to read that over around your table, and I want you to circle the actions there that you do well. You know, like if you say, man, I, I, I do pretty well with, uh, with agreeing with people. Circle that. But I also want you to strike through all the phrases or the words or the concept that you go, I have a difficult time living that out. Maybe you don't agree with people easily, so you'd have to strike that one out. Then I want you to look, so just do that in that first paragraph, okay? So let's see. Um, do it especially in the first paragraph. If you get past that, then go to the second paragraph. But especially in the first, circle the things that you go, yeah, I, I think so. I think I'm doing pretty well on that. And then kind of cross through all the places that you don't do so well. And then around your table, kind of share about those. Go, uh, this is what my picture looks like. Then I've crossed out half of the Bible there. Or, man, I think I've really seen some growth. So kind of look it over. Do those things. And then talk about it around your table. Can you do that? Do you understand what I'm saying? Great. Go. So do it first by yourself, then talk. Go. but want to make a lot more making some progress but want to make a lot more um, so we're going to talk about did, wasn't that pretty revealing to you you know what that might be a good thing for us to do a lot when we come to scripture we ought to just write it out and mark out the things where we're doing badly and see if we have much scripture left I think that would be a really great um, learning tool for us Well, it leads us into this topic of humility. Because Jesus manifested humility in a way that is so gripping to me and so revealing to me that I want to become more like him. So I started saying, what is humility? And humility is an extremely difficult thing to read, I mean to to define. Andrew Murray's definition is this. It's one of my all-time favorites. I just go back to it all the time. I don't have it in your note guides. I forgot to put it in. He says this, um... It is simply the sense of entire nothingness which comes when we see how truly God is all and in which we make way for God to be all. Let me read it again. What is humility? It is simply the sense of entire nothingness which comes when we see how truly God is all and in which we make room for God to be all. So what... For me, what humility is then is saying I want to be so totally, completely wrapped up in him that he is able to just flow through me. And so I just have to be completely dependent on him to do that. Well, let's go a little bit more into seeing what it is. I think the best way to see what humility is is to contrast it with its opposite, which is Pride. I'm going to throw out some things here that I've gotten from uh, Foster and Ortberg and Murray and then have you discuss them, okay? And then we'll get into the practical part that I'm really excited about. Humility. You might put um, underneath that, I didn't put it on yours, but I think you could add it. Entire dependency. Entire dependency on the left-hand side under humility. What is humility? Murray would say... It's entire dependency. Wouldn't it be true that the opposite from that would be, anytime I begin trusting in me, that would be pride. Where I begin saying, it's up to me, or I can do this. I think a lot of times we show that when we don't pray much. When I'm totally, completely dependent on him, i got to pray. When I begin living life on my own without extreme prayer then I'm showing that I'm dependent on myself, and that's where pride then is indicative. indicative. 
What else would it be? I really like this term. It's an Ortberg term. Humility is appropriate smallness. Appropriate smallness. Ortberg goes, I just had some peanuts at one of the table tables, and it's really hard to talk. Um, humility is not thinking poorly about myself as in having a bad self-image. It is not having a bad self-image. Some of you have a bad self-image. That's not humility, guys. Bad self-images are a result of a ton of things, but it's not a result of God saying you're, you're like a worm. The more you know him, the more he redeems that nature, the more you see yourself as something amazing that he's created, but it's all him. I go back to the dependency part. But I like Wartburg's idea, it's appropriate smallness. It's appropriately seeing myself as just nothing outside of the grace of God and the power of God and the love of God flowing through me. What's the opposite of that? Big-headedness. Big-headedness. Think about any time that you don't want to give in or you don't want to give complete glory to God over an accomplishment or maybe how much money you make or how, how nice your car is or something. It, that's kind of that big-headedness compared to the appropriate smallness. What else is it? Humility is surrendering my rights. And this is where you and I start going, No, I love it, Patty, when you talk about the fact that I just should be humble and give God the glory and all that. But when you begin talking about surrendering my rights, you're stepping on some ground that's holy because it's mine. We don't like the thought of surrendering our rights. But turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. I'm going to throw out a lot of scriptures today that I'm hoping you take home and study on your own because they're just, they'll be so helpful to us. Chapter 9 of 1 Corinthians. Um, <coughs> this would be a good chapter for you to take home and study on your own, as, especially when you're struggling with a person. And you want to establish your rights. Maybe it's your husband. Maybe it's your mother-in-law. Maybe it's somebody you work with. But when you want to establish your rights, and you know what you can feel? It's almost like a word picture. You can feel your back getting straighter and straighter and straighter. I'm going to tell you what I think. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 9, talks about the rights of an apostle. He says, basically, I could have a lot of rights, guys. I'm, I'm In essence, he's saying, I'm the apostle of all apostles. In essence, he's saying, I'm your father in the gospel. But look at chapter 9 to see what he says um, when he begins talking about, let's see, look at uh, verse 12b. So it'll probably be a paragraph insert there. He says, but we did not use this right. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. Man, I go to that verse all the time. When I feel myself getting kind of like my back up towards someone and I go but I'm right in this and they're wrong they're harmful they're hurtful I'm right and I go to 1 Corinthians 9 12 I put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel is what I would do here in this situation going to hinder the gospel or further the gospel I just want that to be a lifestyle principle of my life and then look at verse 15 I have not used any of these rights then he goes on to, um, oh, he just has so much more in here, but I, I'm going to let you read it on your own. So, surrendering my rights. On the right-hand side, where there's pride issues there, insisting on getting my way. Stubbornness. Richard Foster has a good quote about this. I put it on your notes there. Oh, it must be on another page. It's like on church on the weekends, isn't it? When John goes to the next page and it's just... Turned by hundreds and hundreds of people. I love to hear that sound. Stubbornness. The obsession to demand that things go the way we want them to go is one of the greatest bondages in human society today. Oh, I think that's so good. That when I insist I'm going to get my way, I'm right on this, I'm actually wrapping chains around me that hurt me. And Jesus would say, it's when I surrender those rights that I'm really free. 
We'll come back to that a little bit later. Um, I think it's Ortberg who calls it healthy self-forgetfulness. One of the tables was saying how uh, in that scripture in Philippians 2 that it's hard to forget myself. Uh, Ortberg calls it healthy self-forgetfulness. How many times do you walk into a room, whether it's at your house, when your husband's there, your kids are there, or where it's a church situation, or it's a, a, a work event, and all you're thinking about is you. All I'm thinking about is me. How do I look? Will they think I look fat? Will they see this pimple on my face? Will they hate my hair? Will they love my hair? Will they um, Will they think that I don't look great enough? Will they think that I don't talk enough? That I talk too much? How many times do we think it's, I'm thinking about me, 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 me. What do you think about me? And I'm often swayed in my emotional makeup by what you think about me. And so if you think I'm good, I'm going, oh, life is good. And if you criticize me, I go, oh, life is so horrible. But Ortberg says, how about humility being where we have that healthy self-forgetfulness? And this is where I go back to prayer. I can't get there without deep prayer. Because it is that human nature to walk in and have it be about me. How many times are you in a discussion with your husbands and things are getting tense? And it's you don't forget yourself. Healthy self-forgetfulness. Uh, the pride issue would be thinking about me, my, and mine. The humility side would be ceasing to be preoccupied with myself. And Ortberg says this. He talks about the Copernican revolution of the soul. You know, Copernicus was the one that realized that uh, the sun didn't revolve around the earth, but the earth revolved around the sun, and it was a major historic scientific uh, discovery. But Ortberg says, the realization that the universe does not revolve around me can be the Copernican revolution of my soul. Oh, don't you want to get to the place where you can forget yourself more? Don't you want to even just sit around your table saying, it's not about what they think about me. I want to help them. Walking into a room saying, I want to help them. Talking to your husband saying, I want to help him. That's such a Christ-like way to walk this earth. And then humility sees the need in others. But pride serves by moods and whims. So if I'm in a good mood, I'm ready to serve you, my husband, my kids, my whatever. If I'm in a bad mood, I don't really care about your needs. I'm just in it for me. Well, as you look over those, humility and pride, where do you see yourself? Where would you like to see yourself? Around your table, let's go to the people who tend to talk the least. And draw out of each person, if you can, um, ask questions of each other. Where do you see yourself? Where are you changing? Where do you need to change? How do you change? We'll come to that in a little bit um, as a lesson. So just look them over. Talk about them a little bit. Maybe you'll say, I don't even like that one. Just be honest around your table and share together. I'll give you several minutes for this one. Go. Well, I want to give you a lot of time to talk in the more practical parts, so I'm going to jump in here, even though I know you could talk for quite a bit about this. Um, one of the tables said something that's so true. Isn't it true that if people really appreciated me, I would find it much easier to be humble towards them? <laughs> and we said, the trouble is, if uh, people appreciated me, I wouldn't even need to look like Jesus, because I just like, you know, I don't have to work at it. But it's when people don't appreciate us that I go, oh man, I need Jesus to help me here. We'll come back to that idea in a little bit too. Um, so what's an antidote to pride? How do we become more humble? I want to uh, talk about the antidote to pride being servanthood. Servanthood. It's one of the hardest things in the world to do to really, really serve but you want to kill off some pride? Learn to serve. Ortberg says it's easier to talk about serving than it is to serve. And all God's children said, you bet. Isn't that so true? Well, who's our example? Let's see what Jesus said about it. Let's look at some scripture that you know that you could quote, but we just got to get it deeper in us. Turn to Matthew 20, verses, verse 28. Matthew 20, 28.
I think to some extent we would say it's easy to just talk about humility. It's much easier to figure out how to live it. Well, the way to live it is to find out how to serve. And our example says, Matthew 20, um, let's back it up a little bit. You know the story in verse 20? The mothers of James and John came to Jesus with her sons. She came with James and John. It's just such a funny word picture. It's such a mother thing. Kneeling down, asked a favor of him. What is it you want? He asked. She said, um, would you grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right hand and the other at your left in your kingdom? Now she knew that these guys were special to Jesus. She'd been around long enough to know that. And so she's thinking, are they really, really special? You're, you're gonna, you've been talking about this kingdom that you're bringing. Do you, do you, which could one of them sit on your right and one on your left? She's thinking she's asking for something really, really special. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? Oh, we can, they answered. I wonder if Jesus sighed here. You will indeed drink from my cup. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my father. Well, when the others, other ten heard about this, they were... They understood perfectly, and they said, yes, we think that one should sit on your right and one on your left. Is that what your Bible says? No. They were ticked. That would be the message's translation of this. They were ticked. They were indignant with the two brothers. So Jesus goes, and this is right before he's going to the cross. He must be so frustrated because he's taught them and taught them and taught them. So he he says, guys, i got to talk with you. And so he said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over you. And their high officials exercise authority over them. But not so with you. It's going, guys, you're supposed to look differently. You should know differently. Instead, whoever wants to become great, James and John, you want to become great? The other ten, you want to become great? You must be servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. And they're going, what? He goes, "Uh, by the way, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Oh my goodness. What powerful scripture. When he's going, guys, you're still a mess in this. You're still wanting to lord it over the tent. The ten, you're wanting to lord it over. You want to be on my right. You want to be on my left. You want to have a special place. You want people to pat you on the back. You want people to know that you're my favorite. Because that's not the way. Did I come that way? He says, I just came to be your servant. Are you going to live like me? I wonder if I'm most like my Savior when I'm serving. Well, what are some specific ways that we can serve? Um, Ortberg and um, Foster have some brilliant ways that are so practical that I'm going to ask you and me to do something this week. I'm going to share with you five ministries that we could do to serve this next week. Now, as we go through this, think about it this way. I'm going to ask you and me to keep a journal this week of all the ways that we do one of these and how we feel when we do it and what transpired as we did it and what were the results as we did it. So as we go through these, be thinking, uh, maybe I could do that one with this person. Maybe I could do that one with this person. Maybe I could do that one with this person. Oh, wait a minute. Probably Jesus would rather I do that one with this other person because I don't like that person. (laughs) So be thinking about it from that standpoint and be thinking you're going to keep a journal for six or seven days. And see how the Lord uses you and changes you in this process, okay? It's going to be really interesting to do. First of all, how can we serve? How about through the ministry of the mundane? M-U-N-D-A-N-E, the ministry of the mundane. I looked up the word mundane to see what it really meant. And this is what it means. Lacking interest or excitement. 
dull. D-U-L-L. Ministering in the dullness of life, in the places where there's no excitement. I think this is where we live daily, isn't it? Sometimes we don't recognize the ability we have to turn the mundane situations of life into times where we can look most like Jesus. We would like the big deal kinds of things. We sometimes, now some of you like the uh, behind the scenes thing. You have this a little bit more down than some of the rest of us. But even you, do you really, are you willing to do it when it's like the most dull, boring thing in the world? Serving out of the limelight as opposed to wanting or needing reward, applause, a pat on the back, or reciprocation. Are you willing to serve? Am I willing to serve when it's just pure mundane stuff that I go, well, I could really serve if Patty asked me to do something that was pretty big in the church. But all I'm doing is this little thing. I'm wiping snotty kids' noses and changing dirty diapers. That is the most routine, mundane stuff of life. Could it be that that is the very place that God wants to help you become his servant more than any other place? Could that be the place that the Holy Spirit wants to use you more than anywhere? Because when you do it without resentment, did I put that on your notes? When you do it without resentment. Now, I want you to think of the place where it might be the hardest for you to do this, where you don't get any appreciation. If you're a mom with small children or teenagers, you don't get any appreciation from those poopy diapers and snotty noses and and kids that back talk. You don't get any reward from that. But could it be that you could turn that mundane moment to a sacred moment. Would you write that somewhere on this point? A sacred moment. What about with your husbands? Where you go, man, he just asks me to do the stupidest stuff. I hate doing the, what, for Cheryl, she always uses that illustration of he likes for her to mow that lawn, and she hates mowing the lawn, and it's a big lawn, but it means so much to her husband. It's so mundane, isn't it, Cheryl, to mow a lawn? I love to mow. But she hates to mow. So think about where you hate to do something. Could it be that you turn that sacred into a sacred moment? I told you before about my illustration that I just wish that I'd gotten this when I was a teenager, when my dad, who was a mean, mean dad, didn't have a kind word ever to say except on Christmas um, and he was just mean and he'd come home from work and he would say you know, he worked a horribly hot job running heavy equipment and he'd work you know, in his 110 degrees in that, in that machine and he'd come home and he'd say I want you to wash my feet Actually, I want you to wash my feet but you probably can't understand hillbilly <laughs> and I was the only one that had to do it the other sisters and brothers didn't have to And I felt so humiliated. Even to this moment, I picture myself getting that water out and putting his dirty, dirty feet in it. Mundane, mundane, dull job. And I didn't do it in love. I wish I could have understood this concept at 16. How could I have turned that into a sacred moment? Because I got it years later when I went to Africa and said to these precious old ladies who were cooking for us, we want to wash your feet. And they were dirty feet. And when those feet went into that uh, pan, I felt like it was sacred. I felt like I didn't care how dirty those feet were. I just wanted her to know that I appreciated her and loved her and valued her. I turned it into the sacred because of God's grace. I wish I could have gotten it before. Because I could have loved on my dad in a different way. Think about that when you think, oh, there's this person that I don't like. How can I turn that into a sacred moment? Your friends, people at work, uh, the ministry of the mundane. I'll give you a chance to talk about that in a little bit, okay? Well, maybe I'll, what do you think? Should I give it to you right now? Or should I give you two of them? Let's get, let me give you two. This one is just such a great concept about serving. And I heard several of you talk about this around your table. Um, it's um, Foster who gives the 
who talks about doing the ministry of being interrupted. The ministry of being interrupted. He says, can we serve people when we're willing to be interrupted by them? And he gives a great illustration. Let me read it to you. See if you relate to this. He writes, um, this is the service of small things. He said, uh, the following is a true story. During the frantic final throes of writing my doctoral dissertation, I received a phone call from a friend. His wife had taken the car, and he wondered if I could take him on a number of errands. Trapped, I consented, inwardly cursing my luck. As I ran out the door, I grabbed Bonhoeffer's book, Life Together, thinking that I might have an opportunity to at least read that. Through each errand, I inwardly fretted and fumed at the loss of precious time. Finally, at a supermarket, the final stop, I waved my friend on, saying that I would wait in the car. I picked up my book, opened it to the marker, and read these words. The second service that one should perform for another in the Christian community is that of active helpfulness. Active helpfulness. This means initially simple assistance in trifling external matters. There's a multitude of these things whenever people live together. Nobody is too good for the lowliest service. One who worries about the loss of time that such petty outward acts of helplessness entail is probably taking the importance of his own career too seriously. Isn't that great? And Foster goes, whoa, I've just been slapped. The ministry of being interrupted. Orber takes this concept from, um, from Foster, and he says, and I like this because you know I love word pictures, he says sometimes we need to live with the latch off the door. The latch off the door. And that's a good word picture for me because how many times do we go, okay, i got my schedule planned. I know exactly what my day is going to look like. And it's like I, I, I develop that, that and I put it in this box and I put the latch on it and I'm going to do this no matter what. Wonder if God wants to say, sometimes you need to take the latch off the door and be available to talk or pray with people who are in trouble. People whom we will not be able to cure and who can't contribute to our success. Ortberg says, whoa, that's pretty good stuff. He says, how about being willing to accept delays and interruptions? And I would say, going along with our first point, how could I turn those interruptions into sacred moments? So think about it. You got your day planned and somebody calls with great need or one of your teenagers has a great need, or the four-year-old gets sick, or the husband says, could you mow the lawn, or somebody at church says, could you help us do this behind-the-scenes thing? Ooh, Lord, could it be that you want to turn that into a sacred moment? Wow. Look over those first two around your table. The ministry of the mundane, turning those into sacred moments so that you're not resentful, or the ministry of being interrupted, and talk about which one you want to talk about. Maybe the one you're struggling with, maybe the one you like the most, maybe the one you're convicted about, however you want to do it. And do it this way. If you have talked quite a bit around your table today, you go last, but you say, well, they don't talk. They will if you don't. So just be real quiet if you're an extrovert. Just be real quiet and say, guys, I'm not going to jump in here. Now, some of you don't have any problems because everybody at your table talks. But, but just make sure that your quiet people get in there and get to share, okay? Which one do you want to talk about around your table? Where do you feel most conviction or the most, oh, my goodness, I've just got to let God do a deeper work in me there? Or how could you turn in those, those things into a sacred moment? Go! Oh, my goodness, I could have just listened to those for 15 minutes, you guys. Those were some great things. Uh, Let me mention a couple things that 
one of the reasons I really like to sit at tables, I know some of you think feel like it's the principal coming, but for me it's really helpful because it helps me. Sometimes I think that I'm doing really well at communicating something, and then I sit at the table and go, oh, you didn't get it, because I didn't, so I need to restate it, or you have another insight that I didn't even think to bring up, so it helps me so much. It helps me more than it helps you when I sit at your table. Um, somebody said this, well, what about when I'm at work? And, ooh, I'm hot. Um, it's coming across on the tape. They're probably thinking, why is she saying I'm hot? I just took my scarf from my neck off. And I'm 61 years old. That's for you who are listening on the tape. Um, what was I saying? Oh, so somebody said, you know, I'm at work, and you're saying, well, I need to go along with interruptions. My boss would fire me. Right. I mean, you always take all this and put it in context. So at work, if somebody says, man, I've got a really great need, and you say, I have to be a good employee, it may be you say, at 1130, I have a break. I'll be happy to talk with you then. So you're still keeping the latch off for some interruptions, but you you want to maintain good integrity at work. Some yeah, so you tell them, I, I get fired because I went to heart strains. Yeah, that's right. Um, somebody else said such a great insight. Uh, she said, when I go to work and I'm really patient at work, I have to be, my, my job demands that I am, and then I go home and my five-year-old is demanding and I'm impatient with her. Well, that's a great insight. I bet a lot of you feel that where you go, Man, I know for my job's sake I'm going to be kind and gracious and loving, how do I take that home when I feel like I let my guard down then? How do I turn my home life into the sacred moment? It's an excellent, excellent thought to keep figuring out. Um, and remember, again, somebody said, you know, when the child has diarrhea and, and you're not sitting there, maybe that for somebody that happened yesterday, your child had diarrhea, and so when she's putting her in the tub, she's not thinking at that moment, how do I turn this into a sacred moment? She's just thinking, you know, I'm so, I just want to go out the door for my appointment. That's exactly what I mean. Those are the exact moments when we want to, to so retrain ourselves that in those very moments we go, oh, God, right now, this is a sacred moment. This is a sacred moment. I'm not saying sacred moments are fun moments, guys. I'm not saying that suddenly that poops everywhere and you're going, why don't my poops come up so much? That's like Kirk Proctor. <laughs> um, I'm not saying that suddenly you sit back and you go, oh, I'm so happy. That's not a sacred moment. Jesus had the sacred moment on the cross, but it wasn't where he was going, oh, isn't life fun? Sacred means bringing God into it. And so when he comes into it, the patience comes. The kindness comes. The thought of, I, at this moment, need to serve. And when I'm serving, I'm like my Savior. Does that help a little bit in some of those thoughts of, you know, what's Patty trying to say here? Well, if that one didn't commit, convict you so far, this is so good. I never thought of this. Serving. How do I become a servant? Well, I become a servant when I um, when I take on the ministry of the mundane, turning it into a, sec- a sacred moment. When I allow for the ministry of interruption, when I turn that into a sacred time. How about the ministry of holding your tongue? <gasps> oh my goodness, I have never, I've written lessons on humility for years, I've never thought of this. And I must have because I read um, Foster before, but I don't remember it. I even have it underlined, but I don't remember it. He says, perhaps the least practiced form of servanthood today, according to Dietrich Bonhoeffer, is the ministry of holding your tongue. So Foster got it from Bonhoeffer. And this is what Bonhoeffer said. Remember, Bonhoeffer was the theologian who was uh, executed in the Holocaust. Often... We combat our evil thoughts most effectively if we absolutely refuse to allow them to be expressed in words. It must be a decisive rule of every Christian fellowship that each individual is prohibited from saying much that occurs to him. So you have somebody that irritates you to death, and we've all got them. 
they're irritating you to death, and you want to do one of two things. You want to give them a piece of your mind, verbally, or you want to tell your best friend about them, verbally. <laughs> you just want to lambast them, either to, the, to them when the friction's getting higher and the nerves are, or the tension's getting higher, or you just, you know, you'll, you'll shut up with them, but you want to go to your best friend and say, <laughs> and Bonhoeffer and Foster say, the, perhaps the best servanthood we could do is just to shut up. Look, take your Bible real fast. Turn to Proverbs 18. You know that the Proverbs talk so much about our tongues. Proverbs 18.8. Just to throw out a few verses. Proverbs 18.8. The words of a gossip are like choice morsels. They go down to a man's innermost parts. Ooh, that's such a good word picture, isn't it? I don't like it, but it's such a good word picture. Look over at Proverbs 20, verse 19. 20, 19. A gossip betrays a confidence, so avoid a man who talks too much. One of the Proverbs says, when words are many, sin is not absent. In other words, the more we talk, the more likely we are to sin because the more words you have, the more propensity you have for having some of them be the bad ones. Interesting. Uh, Proverbs 12.18. 12.18. Oh, this is such a great word picture. So you're in the tension of an argument with your husband or your mom or your mother-in-law or your kids. Reckless words pierce like a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. In the moment, turning those into sacred moments so I can heal. Um, oh man, we've got to stop. Write down these two. Romans one twenty-nine. Just write it down if you would. Romans one twenty-nine. 1 Timothy 5.13 1 Timothy 5.13 Proverbs 12.18 Oh, I, I did that one. Uh, Psalm 19.14 May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing to you. Uh, Psalm 19.14 the ministry of holding your tongue. Let me give you another one and then we'll give you a minute to talk about it because I want to get through all five of these. This is so, so good, you guys. Um, the ministry of bearing. This is from Ortberg who talks about making allowances for someone. Making allowances for someone, especially someone that you find a difficult person. Galatians 6.2. Galatians 6.2. Galatians 6.2, this would be a great one to memorize. Galatians 6.2. The ministry of bearing, the ministry of bearing each other's burdens, especially people that uh, kind of bug you. The NIV says, carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. Um, other translations use bear one another's burdens. I grew up hearing bear one another's burdens. Um, Foster says it this way. Love is most perfectly fulfilled when we bear the hurts and sufferings of each other, weeping with those who weep. Foster says if we care, we'll learn to bear one another's sorrows. He also says, I say learn because this too is a discipline to be mastered. It's not easy to bear other people's burdens, especially people that you find to be difficult. Foster says this, I think it's fabulous. Can we learn to lift the sorrows and pains of others into the strong, tender arms of Jesus so that our burden is lighter? So, you know, I'm taking, 
I'm talking with you. I'm taking, helping carry your burdens. But Foster says, then can I lift those to Jesus, into the tender, strong arms of Jesus, so that even my burden is lighter? Of course we can. But it takes some practice. So rather than dashing out to bear the burdens of the whole world, let us begin more humbly. We can begin in some small corner somewhere and learn Jesus will be our teacher. It's more than tolerating people. Fortberg says it this way. It's also learning to hear God speak through that person. This is a, just a, an insightful thought, guys. Sometimes we can be talking with someone, especially that we find draining or, um, you know, like, oh, man, they got more problems. They got to listen to more problems. And, you know, you, you begin going, you, you just feel yourself going, Ugh, not again. Ortberg says, take it even to a deeper level. It's also learning to hear God speak through them. It's learning to be for them, not just like going like, okay, listen to them, but I'm just, they're driving me crazy. It's learning that the difficult person I have most to deal with is me. Dealing with difficult people reveals more about me than I wish that it did. It reveals my impatience. It reveals my uh, judgmentalism. It reveals my desire to just make people snap out of it. It reveals my shallowness. And Ortberg says, listen, learn to listen to what the Holy Spirit might be saying to you and revealing about you. You can't bear everybody's burdens, but you can bear some. Now, I want you just to take a couple of minutes, because we only have 16 minutes left. But I want you to look at number uh, number three and four, holding your tongue and bearing each other's burdens. And do the same thing that you did so far. Which one of those speaks to you, touches you, convicts you, uh, kicks you, prods you, or where you need to get better? However you want to talk about it, would you do that with, uh, with those two? Go. Would you write, I forgot to have you do this, but would you write underneath that number four, the ministry of bearing? Would you also write the word sacred on that? If you notice, I'm using the word sacred under each one of these points. Turning the interrupted moments into sacred. Uh, Holding my tongue and turning my words to being sacred. Maybe I didn't even give that one. Turning my words to being sacred. And then bearing with each other's burdens, turning difficult situations into sacred moments. One of the ways I do that a lot, guys, is if I'm talking with someone, especially if if it would be a real draining person... And, 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 and for whatever reason, I would tend to, to be going, you know, doing the inward sigh. What I try to do is to picture the cross in between the two of us. And so I'm seeing him, I'm seeing her through the light of the cross. And that just changes my perspective on that person. And I go, Lord, help me right now to see him, to see her in the light of the cross. And it really helps me. The, the fifth one I want to make sure we get to as we close, the ministry of hidden service. Hidden service. Foster talks about this. It's one of my favorite things he writes about. He says there should be things in our lives that we do that are totally hidden so that nobody can give us any reward from for it. Nobody can pat us on the back for it. Nobody, Because it's just purely, I'm just doing this because I'm a Christ follower. And he says it really well in that paragraph there. More than any other single way, the grace of humility is worked into our lives... Oh, I'm sorry, Lover. More than any other single way the grace of humility is worked into our lives is through the discipline of service. Nothing disciplines the inordinate desires of the flesh like service, and nothing transforms the desires of the flesh like serving in hiddenness. The flesh whines against service. But it screams against hidden service. Oh, it's so good. It strains and pulls for honor and recognition. And Foster says, hiddenness is a rebuke to the flesh and can deal a fatal blow to pride. Do you understand what he's talking about? Doing stuff in secret. So that nobody knows that you're doing this. It's serving your husband without any ever getting any ever asking for appreciation. It's doing stuff for people that nobody has any idea. It's sending you know somebody has a need for money. And so, you know, it's one thing to send them a check saying, um, I heard you had this need. Here's $100. Jesus told me to send this to you, and I just want to serve you. It's a far... And then getting there, oh, thank you, thank you, thank you. How did you know? 
it's a far different thing to send a cashier's check for $100 and they never know you sent it. Foster says, that rips at the pride because there is something in us that says, I'll serve, but I want people to say, you did a good job on that. Or to pat me on the back or to say, I noticed. And Foster says, if you want to really have that pride ripped out, do it in secret. The ministry of hidden service. Some of you in here do think, I think about uh, the people who come every week and stuff those chair backs. One, two of the people who do it is a mom and her autistic daughter. Nobody has any idea that they just think those things get magically inserted. And they just come week after week. Nobody even knows their names. Or people who stuff our bulletins every week. I saw them uh, come in on Saturday mornings and they're out here. Uh, last, this, last week they had a lot of people. But was it the week before Glenda? There was, oh, I'm sorry, it's got to be hidden. Um, there was nobody, there were three people there doing, you know, 2,000 bulletins or whatever. And nobody knows it. Nobody has any idea. Or some of you who do things that nobody knows what you do in our church. Or nobody knows what you do at the shelter. But you just do it, and you're doing it in a hidden way. Oh, some of you haven't, some of you don't fight against that quite so much, but some of you have temperaments that go, I just really like it when people know it. Hidden service. Think about in your own life what keeps you from being more involved in acts of secrecy and what needs to happen inside us to allow for it. And I would encourage us to take the hiddenness and turn it into sacred moments so that the rewards come from our master. Well, this week, see that at the bottom of your paper? This week, I want to encourage you. I'm so excited about how we do this. This week, I encourage us to take a, a little notebook or some somehow a little journal and do some of these things all throughout the week. In fact, it'd be great if you have each other's phone numbers, call each other and say, how are you doing? Or email each other and say, how are you doing? Wash somebody's feet symbolically by serving Some of you might do that as you have to take care of the little child in the bathtub. But you're washing their feet. Turn it into a sacred moment. Uh, Do something for someone in a tangible way. Send somebody an encouraging card. Um, uh, Take somebody a meal that is, you know, in the hospital. Come home from the hospital. Or do something for someone in secret. Send money. Or a gift, but don't tell anybody you've done it. And next week when you come and we share these, you'll probably have to keep it hidden too. You'll probably have to say, yeah, I did something hidden, but I can't tell you what I did. Uh, What else can you do? Shut up! You know, more often just listen to somebody. And Jill said it so well. I'm just trying to talk less so that I can pull more out of the other person. Just shut up more often. Listen to someone who drives you crazy. Somebody that you tend to just go, I don't want to listen to them. See him with the cross in front of you. Listen, uh, pray, 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 pray. Man, you just got to pray or you'll never be able to do this stuff. Uh, then I said, what would you add? Some of you, even as I've been talking this morning, you've thought, oh, I should do this, and I haven't even thought about it. Um, and keep a journal of all those things and then be prepared to share them next week. I love what Ortberg says in closing. There was no grandiosity in Jesus at all. That's one reason people had such a hard time recognizing him. They expected somebody who looked a lot different than this guy who was serving, who let people beat him. They just didn't get that. And he's my example. He's my role model. He's yours too, isn't he? Around your table, let's take the last four minutes and let's just pray. Ask the Lord to help you this week. Maybe you want to name the particular person. Maybe it's your husband. You want to just name. God, help me with him. I just really, really need your help. But let's sum it up in prayer together. Go. Lord, I think everybody in this room is going to admit we just really, really need your help this week. Um, this is stuff that just gets to the core of who we are, which sometimes just still doesn't look very good. And yet that's what part of what you do in transforming our lives. You continually show us parts that don't look like Jesus. So it's a good thing that we notice today that we're not real good servants in some places to some people. And I pray that you would really do a deep work in us this week. Remind us all to every day and help us to take advantage of the reminder that we really want to pay attention to this stuff. And bring people and situations into our lives all week long that bring this up. 
Show us our impatience. Show us our lack of kindness. Show us our lack of friendliness. Show show us our selfishness, our stubbornness, our pride. Just really reveal that to us all week, Lord, so that we can in that moment go, oh, yeah, here it is again. Okay, Holy Spirit, would you cleanse me? Would you purify me? Would you sanctify me? And help us to turn each of these moments into sacred, holy moments and live for your glory. We pray in your holy, precious name. Amen. Hey, let me tell you, as you get ready to go, uh, some of you have asked about Pam Hirsch, how she's doing. Pam is one of our Heartstrings women who is in, um, who is a wonderful part of our church and a wonderful part of Heartstrings and is just a, a woman I adore and a lot of you adore. She is in a prison camp for the next four months um, in, uh, in Illinois. And I just got a letter from her yesterday or the day before, and she's just doing great. We'll probably do some kind of a card shower for her the next couple weeks uh, to send those to her. And she just is, God is just using that woman in amazing ways, and um, I'll give you more details on it um, soon. But if you can remember to pray for Pam, she just really is depending on prayers. And what she's doing is as people are sending her things and prayer requests, she's spending part of her day in prayer for people who are um, here at our church. So if you can remember to pray for Pam, that would be great. Um, if you didn't, if you came in late, we're taking our offering, and instead of putting it towards child care today, we're going to give it to the project from Awana where they're doing... Um, a co-op with people in pa- with some kids in Palestine. And so if you'd like to donate to that, we're going to take that back there in a little bit. Have a great week and bring your journal next week so we can share. The first question will be, how'd you do with the ministry of all these things? Okay? Have a great week.